Again, uh, welcome to Freedom. It's always good to see you here today. And uh, To those of you who are joining us online, uh, we're especially glad to have you tune in that way. Whether it's live or catching this later in the week, we're glad to have you be a part of Freedom Online. Uh, our kids uh, will stay in with us today because it's the last Sunday of the month. We'll just all stay in together. We're going to shift gears now as we turn our attention to the Word. As we do that, uh, I want to invite you to now just bow with me again in prayer as we turn to the Lord. Father, we pray today for a fresh move of your Spirit that would bring about real life change in us. We do not need just another cycle of going through religious ritual. We desperately long for and need a fresh encounter with you, a fresh touch from your Holy Spirit. I'm not asking this for the sake of show, but just I want you to be honest. If today you just feel it in your heart that you need a fresh touch from God, that you long for a fresh word from the Lord, you long for life change for you personally, would you just indicate that just by raising your hand and let that be your way of saying God, if you're going to touch somebody, let it start with me. God, you, you see hands raised around this room, and we're just asking you today for a fresh move and a fresh touch and for a life change that would reshape us and that would bring you glory. And we trust you for that, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll invite you to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 3 as we continue in this current series entitled Paradise Lost and Found. Uh, we're in uh, the heat of summer, which means folks are coming and going traveling, and so I realize some of you probably have not been with us the last couple of Sundays as we've started this series, which is a look at the first three and the final three chapters of the Bible. We've talked about how if you're going to understand the story, if you're going to understand the book, you better know about the beginning and you better know about the end, or the middle part's not going to make any sense, and the Bible is very much that way. We're getting a, a quick look at at both the beginning and the end, at a picture of how God intended for life to be and what God is working to restore life to in, in the very final chapters of Revelation so that we can make sense of what's going on in life in between. And as we look today at the third chapter of Genesis, I can't ever read the, the third chapter of Genesis without remembering a story that I heard years ago about a pastor who it was sort of just his little thing that he would always do that whenever he was wanting to leave somebody a note, wanting to communicate something personal from him, that sort of his unique way of doing it was instead of using his own words, he would just, he'd just give a little scripture reference that would say what he wanted to say, sort of his hyper-spiritual way of communicating. And so he had had a, a lady who was new to the community visit his church on Sunday, and then uh, he went to visit her in, in kind of old school style of, to visit her in her home, thank her for coming. And so he went by her house to visit and he saw that the car was in the driveway and he went and knocked on the door and he could hear some rustling inside the house but nobody came to the door and he knocked again still nobody came to the door and so he pulled out his business card to to leave to let her know that he had been there and so he's thinking what bible verse could he leave as his personal word to her and he, it occurred to him he wrote revelation 320 on the on his card and slipped it in the door revelation 320 you all know the verse behold i stand at the door and knock if anyone opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. His cute little way of saying, I was at your door, you should have let me in. So he goes on about his way, and, and the next Sunday, 
He'd sort of forgotten about that. And following the service, um, one of the ushers who had handled the offering as they were sorting through it came to the pastor after the service and said, well, when we were sorting out the offering, we found one of your business cards in here and it had some things written on it, so we thought we should give it back to you and gave it back to him. He picked it up and he recognized the card. It was his card that he had written Revelation 3.20 on, but there was a second reference written underneath that. And it was Genesis 3.10, which says... I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. <laughs> so there you go. Never hurts to know the word. I want to share a message with you today entitled, A Little Compromises with Big Consequences. And we're going to talk today about one of the two central events in all of human history. If you think about it, uh, pretty much without question, there are two events in human history that have shaped history and that have impacted the lives of people far more than anything else that ever happened in history. But we all know without having to think twice that the first, in terms of importance, the first and most significant impactful event is the death and resurrection of Jesus, which we've celebrated and sung about today. Nothing has reshaped history more than Jesus death, burial, and resurrection. But there is one other event which has impacted just as many lives as the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's what we're going to read about today. Everyone has been tremendously impacted by this other event that we're going to read about that's recorded in Genesis 3. And so we pick up in chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Now, Bear in mind, when we read about this encounter between Eve and the serpent, when we hear serpent, we think snake, but you have to bear in mind that the creature that Eve is interacting with didn't look like a snake. Whatever this creature was had not been cursed yet. And we don't know how much to read into this, but you just got to bear in mind that pre-fall, Adam and Eve are very intelligent beings and she isn't freaked out by an ability to communicate with an animal, which is a very intriguing thought. I'll just leave it at that. But she's not freaked out that there is a, a creature, as, as we understand it now, through which Satan is speaking. The Scripture is very clear as in other references to this, that Satan himself is manifesting through some animal that is identified as the serpent. And he speaks to the woman and says, Did God really say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? If you weren't here last week, a quick rewind. In chapter 2, when God had made Adam the first man, he placed him in this beautiful garden that he called Eden, which means uh, delight, pleasantness. There's just this place of absolute delight where every tree that you can imagine that's beautiful or with good food to eat from it is there. But in the middle of the garden, God had put two special trees, the tree of life, which... It becomes a tangible way for humanity to, to access what is sort of the equivalent of a fountain of youth. Access to the tree of life would ensure that you're never going to die. And right there with the tree of life is another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God wanted mankind to always have access to the tree of life. The tree of life is still in the equation when paradise is restored at the end of Revelation. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God said you are never to take from that. If you ever do, death is going to enter the equation. And so when the serpent comes and talks to the woman, he says, so did God really tell you you can't eat from any of these trees in the garden? Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, 
We may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. She added a little extra spice to that. God didn't say anything about not touching it, but she added that in there. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together. And they made coverings for themselves. And everything suddenly changed. For Adam and Eve and every human that would be their descendants. And for all of creation. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam, when he's put on the spot and called to account, did what any bold, strong man would do. He blamed his wife. The man replied, The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree, and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, What is this that you have done? And Eve followed suit. She blamed the serpent. And she says, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. We're going to return to that verse. It's the first prophecy in the Old Testament, actually, because it's a reference to Christ and what Satan would do to try and kill him and what Christ would do in response but it is interesting that whatever this creature looked like that satan had manifest himself through is cursed and the result of that that we have in nature is what we know as snakes a specific animal that's been cursed now i've said sort of jokingly all of my life because i hate snakes i I hate all snakes people will say well only the poisonous ones are bad i want to tell you i hate them all I hate the living, I hate the dead, I hate the poisonous, I hate the non-poisonous. God cursed them, and God put enmity between all of Eve's descendants and the snakes, and I'm just trying to fulfill what the Word says. But isn't it an interesting thing? I mean, I know the nature lovers are going, oh, but they're just innocent little animals. Recognize that God will use things in nature to point us to very significant spiritual realities or truths in life. And God cursed this animal and turned it in to a creature that by nature we find disturbing, sneaky, a threat. And, and then the scriptures use that picture as a, a constant reference back to Satan. That, that becomes for us a tangible 
reference point for our enemy, the devil. It's always lurking, always sneaking around, looking for an opportunity to strike. So I just figure I'm just going to go ahead and lump them together with the devil and hate them all. Verse 16, he said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. And then he said to the man, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. The effects of sin have not only affected all of humanity, but creation itself is now under a curse. And the scripture alludes to again and again how creation itself groans longing for the day of its redemption. When Jesus returns, he's not just going to liberate humanity, but he's going to liberate creation itself from the curse that is that it's under because of our sin. And he says, You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the, sweet of, by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it, for you are dust, and you will return to dust. It's interesting to recognize that God always intended women to bear children and to be mothers, but that the intense pain that's involved in that wasn't a part of the original equation, that that's a part of the curse of the fall, and that work was always to be a part of the equation. God put man in the garden prior to the fall with an intention for him to be productive and and working, but creation was going to cooperate with him in that, and that his work, his labor would always be productive, but from the time of the fall, suddenly there are thorns and thistles there are weeds and vines it is as if earth itself is working against his attempts at provision and productivity you you realize life as god intended it things were just going to work as they should motherhood would come naturally and without such great pain and and suffering and and work would be productive without such adversity and and yet sin just tangles everything up verse 20 The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife. And he clothed them. And the Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out. Take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. You realize that what he's about to do is an act of mercy. That to to live forever in this broken, sinful state would be a curse because of the separation that it creates between mankind and God. So the Lord God sent him away from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken, and he drove the man out and stationed the cherubim, that is the angels of God, and the flaming, whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. God intended for life to be in this place of delight and for things to just flow naturally. And we, we begin at the start of the chapter with life exactly as God intended. There is wonderful fellowship and just openness and connection between God and people. There's this incredible level of intimacy between the man and the woman. They're in harmony with nature. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter, they're no longer in the garden. They're no longer in a place of delight. And we suddenly see for the first time strife between the man and the woman. We see separation between people and God. We see guilt and shame have set in. Everything is turned upside down. And we're only to page three. 
chapter 3, literally page 3 of the Bible. Now, my Bible's got 1,122 pages in the particular version that I carry. And I'll just tell you, it's going to take 1,120 pages thereabouts to get back to, I'm sorry, 1,125 pages in my Bible. It's going to take another 1,120 pages to get back to the state that we just lost in Genesis 3. Jesus said in John 5, My Father works even until today, and I still work. What are they working at? They are working at restoring life to what God intended for it to be. Getting us back to the right kind of relationship with God and with each other and with the world around us. God is faithfully working to restore things to the way that they should be. And these bookends remind us of what it should be. Now, in what we read today, and I can't begin to unpack everything that's there, but there are a couple of important things that I do not want you to miss today. What I'm going to spend the remaining time that we have on is just exploring two things. First of all, we're going to talk about temptation. Would you agree that, to a large extent, the quality of your life, the quality of the lives of all of your loved ones, are tied to how you deal with temptation? Would you think about that for just a minute? I mean, we're all beset by temptation, right? Temptation of, of all kinds. Temptations to, to eat what we shouldn't eat, or drink what we shouldn't drink, or... or to indulge ourselves in, in sexual pleasure or just in every shape or form. Temptations to, to blame other people for our choices or our situations. Temptations to blame God and be mad at God for what's happened in our lives. I mean, we could just go on and on for the rest of the hour spelling out the things that tempt us. And what you do with temptation will pretty much determine the quality of your life. So we're going to spend the first part of our time talking about temptation and some things that you've got to understand if you're going to have victory in the face of temptation. And then the final portion of our time, we're going to talk about what to do when you have failed in the face of temptation. What to do when you've blown it. Because, I mean, here's the thing. God wants us to have victory. God does not want us to be ruled by the tempting things that would pull us down. But the truth of the matter is, sometimes you're going to do the wrong thing. There have been plenty of times in the past when we chose the wrong thing. And if you don't know how to deal with your, your failures, then you're just going to live at the bottom all the time. You're just going to be stuck in the mire and all the guilt and shame. And so how to, how to deal with the situations when we've blown it. So to begin with, five things that we see from this passage that temptation will always do. If we can understand it, then we can begin to have victory over it. So first of all, temptation will always, number one, distort what God says about a matter. You see that at the very beginning of the story, don't you? When the serpent begins by saying, Did God really say that you must not eat fruit from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? And then by the time they get a little further into the conversation, he's saying, No, 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 no. You're not going to die. I mean, it wouldn't kill you to eat one piece of that fruit. How could that kill you? Have you ever noticed how consistently when you're in the face of, of dealing with a temptation that's real for you. There's this thing that happens, this little conversation that happens in your head that begins to, to sort of muddy the water as to what God really says about that. And the whole point is to call into question, did, did God really say that? I mean, did, 
did God really say that it's wrong for a Christian to marry a non-Christian? I mean, did He really say that? I mean, this might be the way that that person comes to faith in Christ. If, if I, as a Christian, marry a non-Christian, did God really say that? Did God really say that you should wait until you're married to have sex? I mean, if you really love each other, aren't you really already sort of kind of married? I mean, did God really say that that's wrong? Did God really say I should pay my taxes? I mean, what if I don't like some of the things that the government's doing with it? What if those are some ungodly things that they're doing with it? I mean, did God really say... And, and the more we begin to hear those questions and think through these rationalizations, we begin to get a little cloudy and, as to whether God really said that. And what did that really mean? And, and it's not just the specific things that God has said in His Word. It's the things that God has said to us personally, the things that He has shown us. And yet there begins to be this little dialogue that calls into question what God has said. When somebody's in recovery and they've gotten clean and, and they're to a better place, but then this little dialogue begins to happen. I mean, it goes back to Satan's line here of, you're not going to die. One little taste of that fruit certainly wouldn't kill you. A person in recovery begins to hear, it's not going to kill you to have one drink. It's just one beer. It's just, it's just a social drink. It's not going to kill you. Whoever died from one drink, one joint is not going to kill you. Whoever died from smoking one joint, whoever died from taking one pill, it's not going to kill you. Temptation begins by distorting what God has said to you. And now we begin to be on shaky ground. The second thing temptation does is it always offers us something that seems better than what God offers us. I don't know any story that illustrates it better than the one we just read. I mean, is there any story in history that more typifies the fact that we're just never content? I mean, we can point to anybody's life today and, and it would come up second compared to Adam and Eve in terms of living with real perfection. They had life exactly as God intended it, and yet Satan still managed to deceive them into thinking, you really should have it better than you do. Isn't that essentially what he was telling them? I mean, you think you've got it good here, but you know what you need to do is compare yourself to God. You could have the same level of knowledge and understanding that God has. If you just do this, you start comparing yourself to God now and, and see if things are really as they ought to be. And the woman looks at this and she's like, well, you know, I really, I'd like to know as much as God knows. And you realize that's what the whole temptation, what the deal is about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We could read that and say, well, what's wrong? We ought to know the, the difference between good and evil. What that tree represented for mankind was no longer needing to depend on God. For direction. I don't want to have to look to God for Him to tell me what's right and what's wrong, whether I should do something or not. I want to be able to decide for myself what is right for me. You realize that this is the, the issue, maybe more than any other, that modern culture wrestles with. We don't want God telling us. We don't want the Bible telling us what's right and what's wrong. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong for you. That's fine for you, but don't try and tell me that that truth applies to me. I want to decide for myself. Yes, indeed, you and all the rest of us are eaten up with this disease that is the result of having to have something from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I want to decide. I want to decide what's right. It's my body. It's my life. It's my choices. 
Every time you hear anybody trying to defend stuff, it's my body, it's my choice, it's my, 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 my. You just remember the garden. You remember how much was cursed and broken and lost because humanity said, it's my choice. I want to decide. I want to have what I want to have. I want to be able to decide and know just like God does. That's what put us in this hole. And Eve believed the lie. She believed that she could have something better than what she had. And this problem begins when we start to compare. That's what Satan lured her into doing. Well, see, you don't know what God knows. You ought to have the same level of knowledge that God has. You compare yourself to Him and you come up short. You should have more. Recognize that this is a big part of what temptation works off of in us is the whole issue of comparison. Think about it. Married people or people who are in love and and dating, when you start comparing your spouse or your beloved to somebody else, they're frequently going to come up short. Not because there's something lacking in your mate, but because it's really easy from a distance on the outside to only see the best side of other people. And the moment you start comparing them, you start thinking that there's something better out there, that you deserve something better. And it's not that there is something better out there. It's just the nature of temptation. The devil's going to lie to you and tell you that he has something better for you than what God has already provided. And the moment we start comparing, we start thinking, well, there's somebody better than who I'm with. We start comparing, well, I ought to have a better job. I ought to have a better house. I ought to have a better car. Why doesn't God love me? Why doesn't He take better care of me? Why is my life the way that it is? As if somehow God is shortchanging us or our mate is shortchanging us. Comparison will get you in trouble. And it's just as true for me as it is for you. We can compare everything in the world. For pastors, one of the biggest traps in the world is to compare churches. Well, I love Jesus just as much as he does. Why is his church three times the size of mine? Oh, I'll be painfully honest with you. When we started Freedom Church, we were meeting in Daphne. And I lived just off of 181 south of Fairhope. And every Sunday morning when I would drive to to our services as we're launching our little church... Guess what I drove past every Sunday morning? I drove past the early service of Three Circle, what used to be church on the Eastern Shore, a church that I planted, and their parking lot would be packed in front of the church and behind the church. And every single Sunday when I would drive past there, I would be so tempted to look out there and think, why? Why are they so big and we're starting so small The temptation is so big to compare. You want to know what I did in response to that? I found a new way to get to church. I found a different route to church. Because I realize it is human nature to compare, and I know better than to fall into that trap. Listen, I don't want you to start feeling weird about this. There isn't a day of, this is the truth, there isn't a day of my life that goes by that I wish that I was pastoring somewhere else. There isn't a day that I wish that I was pastoring that church or any other church because I know the joy of being where God planted me. I love you and I love where I am. But I also know this, if I start looking around, if I start comparing, I'm as susceptible as you are to falling into that trap of thinking, Mm, poor old me, I ought to have something better. I could have better. I deserve more. And it's a trap. 
is temptation from the enemy. The third thing you need to know about temptation is temptation will always tap into our biggest areas of natural weakness. The woman, as she looked at the fruit, she saw that it was good for food, it was pleasing to the eye, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom. And so she took some and ate it. It's a reference early on to the three basic areas that we struggle with. The, the lusts of the flesh. Ooh, I would love to taste that. I would love for it to fill my belly. The lust of the eyes. I would love to have that. And the pride of life. I would love to be as smart as it would make me. Now, all of that came from inside of her. The devil didn't have to stir that up in Eve or in Adam. James reminds us of this in James 1.14 when he says, Temptation comes from our own desires which entice us and drag us away. Every one of us have got weak spots. Now, all three of those at different times apply to every one of us, but recognize one of those three is a bigger weak spot for you. One of those in particular is a weak spot for me. John refers to these in 1 John 2.16 when he says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for all we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. And we don't have time to fully unpack these, but just suffice it to say, those three things, those three general categories of temptations. First of all, the lust of the flesh. When, when the Scripture refers to lust of the flesh, this is the desire to feel and experience things that are beyond what we're supposed to. And, and people who struggle immensely with the lust of the flesh, we want to we wanna eat too much, we want to drink too much, we want to have sex outside of boundaries, or, or we want to rest too much. Sins of, of things like you know, addictions to, to alcohol or drugs or, or food, um, things like sloth and laziness, that, those are sins of the flesh. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. That is the desire to acquire, the, the need to possess, just, just always wanting more. People who struggle with you know, spending too much and shopping too much and just never being content. I, if I could just have that. I, I just, I, my car is just fine, but I need to trade cars. My house is just fine, but I'd like a newer, nicer house. The, just always needing more, more, more. That's the lust of the eyes. I just, I just want more. And then the pride of life. That is, a lot of, pride, the scripture says pride is deceptive, and it is because the people who have got it the most don't think they have it at all. Pride, as much as anything, is a need to be recognized and liked. And some people aren't going to like what I'm about to say, but just let it land where it lands. Social media will help us to understand ourselves if pride is our main area. If you need to post everything that's going on in your life and then constantly check to see how many people liked it, then this is a, there's a good chance this is your area. I mean, r recognize what the Scripture referred to that is. A pride in our achievements and possessions. A, a, a pride in, in what we have done. I mean, if we can't eat breakfast without having to post it and then just in our heart hope that 50 different people like what we had for breakfast today. or what, you know, I, I know some people are like, get off of it and I will. But <laughs> j just realize... All of these things can simply be a window to our soul to realize, I need you to like me. I need you to recognize me. I need you to tell me that I'm good. That's an issue. If I've always got to have more, that's an issue. If I'm always looking to feel more, to experience more, that's an issue. I'm not trying to beat us up over any of those, but you need to recognize which of those is your weak spot because you're going to deal with those differently. If, if the lust of the flesh is what's strongest in you, 
you're going to have to pursue disciplines because disciplines, self-control, and accountability are going to be the key to dealing with those. You're going to have to be willing to be transparent and have accountability partners, and you're going to have to really exercise disciplines like fasting. If the lust of the eyes is an issue for you, you're not going to like this at all. You're not going to deal with that unless you just learn to give, give, give like crazy. You won't pray yourself out of that. You won't worship yourself out of that. Giving is the only solution to the lust of the eyes. It's the only real tangible thing that you can do. Every time you acquire something, give something away. And in terms of of the issue of of the pride of life, you're going to have to learn to do things in secret. You're going to have to learn to serve without letting anybody know what you did, learn to give without letting anybody know what you did. You're going to have to learn to practice your faith in ways where you secretly do things that you, every fiber of your being wants recognition for and you don't dare let anybody know what you did. Now we've got to move on. The fourth thing that temptation will do is temptation will always work best when we have no one around who will speak the honest truth to us. The most shocking thing to me in this entire Genesis 3 account is that Adam was right there while the whole thing went down. It's sort of subtle, but it's clear. In verse 6, it says, as Eve does all this, her husband was there with her. So then after she eats some and doesn't drop dead, then she gives some of it to him and he eats it. Do you remember in chapter 2, Eve isn't even created yet. God talks to Adam and says, Son, you've you got to know how weighty this is. This is life and death. Don't dare eat this. And yet, when all this goes down in the beginning of Genesis 3, Adam's just right there watching the whole thing. And he realizes, Eve's fixing to chow down on what God said is going to kill you. And Adam doesn't lift a finger to stop her. It's like he's just going, Huh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, she's a grown-up. She's got a mind of her own. Well, let's just see what happens. Seriously? Well, it's her decision. It's her life. Let's just see what happens. And she eats it, and it doesn't kill her. And he's like, well, it didn't hurt her. I guess I'll try some myself. I look at that exchange, and I think that is a picture of, of our culture today. And, and tragically, it is a picture of church culture today in America. If you are going to have victory in the face of the most difficult temptations in your life, you have got to have somebody, one or more somebody's in your life, who will speak hard truth to you. And you've got to be willing to do the same for them. And I can't find many people who practice this or who receive it. We have such a Western culture, we have such, and and the Western church, we have such an an individualistic concept of Christianity. And it, and it goes back to uh, some positive roots, you know. Uh, our American heritage, it's, it's rugged individualism. You just, you just got to make your own way, be a pioneer. And that's great in that setting. But I want to tell you, in matters of, of life and faith, it doesn't work. You try and do it on your own, and you know what happens? You're going to get your tail kicked. You just will. You are made to live in community and to need other people. And if you don't have other people that you depend on and who speak truth into your life and hold on to you, you will get run over by the enemy. You won't even be able to deal with your own temptations that come from inside of you. You have got to have some other people who speak truth to you. So I've got two or three hard questions for you. They're not hard questions. They're just direct questions. First of all, 
Are you one of those people who speaks that kind of loving, hard truth to others? Not judgmentally, but just out of compassion and concern, who will speak hard truth to others? That's the first question. Do you do that? And if so, who are the people that you exercise that with? I'm not talking about the the condescending, judgmental person who's just running around just trashing other people. I mean the person who just out of a true burden will will say, I love you too much to stand back and watch this happen. We've got to talk about what's going on here because my heart is breaking for you. Do you do that for, for people around you? Secondly, do you have one or more friends or family members who are that honest with you? And if so, who are they? Do you have a real truth speaker in your life? I've got two or three of those in my life, and I mean to tell you they are so valuable. For one thing, I love that my wife is that way. She is not intimidated or impressed with me. She's not, and she shouldn't be. And so she speaks candidly and directly with me. John Beck is one of those kind of friends for me. There's nothing that John is afraid to to say to me. And there have been times John's made me mad in the past because he would be direct with me. He is not the kind of friend that I need if he won't do that at times. Do you have that kind of friend in your life? Third question. Do you receive the truth when you have that kind of friend and they speak directly to you? One of the most painful memories that I carry is of someone that I love and respect who has consistently spoken this kind of truth into my life. And at one of the most pivotal points in my life, he spoke truth and I didn't receive it. Even all these years later, it's, it's just not easy to admit that. I was 19 years old when I got engaged. If that sounds foolish to you, it's only because it was. That was, that was not a brilliant move on my part. Family that were closest to me and knew me the best didn't feel great about that decision. I was in my third semester of college and didn't know much about the world. But I was in love and I prayed about it, so it had to be good. I was too naive to recognize that when you're in love, your discernment goes out the window and you desperately in those times more than any other time in your life need to listen to the counsel of people who love you and love Jesus. But I prayed about it and I had a peace about it. Well, that is Christian code for I don't care what you say. I prayed about it and I got a peace, me and Jesus. It's all good because I said a prayer and I feel good. Let me tell you, love and lust will override godly discernment about 99% of the time. Yes, it will, tragically. My older brother, throughout my life, I have respected him as any, much as anybody on the planet. And as I'm engaged, a sophomore in college, and planning my wedding, he had the guts to call me up in Tuscaloosa and say, I love you, but I need to talk to you about what you have announced that you're doing. And, I mean, to be honest, he just broke my heart that night. He said, I love you enough. I just got to tell you this. I don't think you're making a good decision. I don't believe that for you to do this so hastily at this time in your life, I don't believe for a minute that that's the will of God. Well, I wouldn't listen to that. I wouldn't receive that. And I just plowed on through. And for the next 24 years, I made up my mind, no matter how hard this is, I'm going to make it work. And I, and I bought a lot of my own misery by forcing my will and not listening to godly discernment. Now, 
it's probably hard for you to appreciate how hard it is for me to acknowledge to you what I'm saying right now. I'm not denying that in the midst of bad judgment, poor decisions, that God can't bring good. My daughters are a picture of, of, of the good that he brought out of that. But I still have to acknowledge I got into that situation because I didn't listen to truth being spoken into my life because I was determined I could decide for myself without listening to others speaking hard truth. We all need that. The fifth thing that temptation will always do is it will leave us disappointed with its results whenever we yield to it. Somebody say amen or oh me. It goes on to say that as a result of taking this thing that looked so good that they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, they had to create something to cover themselves. We now need to cover up, put on a front. They now need to hide from the Lord and they now begin to blame each other. It is a picture of what happens every time we compromise. We have to deal with our shame and guilt. We carry that with us. It screws up our relationships with one another. And, and at least in our minds, it creates a barrier between us and God. It reminds me of the old saying, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And that's always the case. But what do you do when you have blown it? The truth be told, there are plenty of us in the room today, watching and listening online today, going, Preacher, that's all true, and that's all well and good, but the problem is the toothpaste is already out of the tube, and I'm not getting it back in. I already gave in to temptation. I'm now living with the consequences of it. How do I deal with that? There are three things from this passage that you need to remember when you've blown it. And the first one is this. God still loves you and God is still pursuing you. It's important that you realize this. For every important truth in life that comes from God, Satan has a counterfeit that is a corollary to that. It is a lie designed to counter that truth. The truth is, regardless of what you've done, God still loves you and God is still pursuing you. And here's Satan's corollary lie to that. God's still mad at you and God's still punishing you. The truth is, God still loves you and he's still pursuing you. And Satan has been whispering in your ear all this time, no, God's still mad at you. And God is still punishing you. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. If you're a child of God, God has forgiven you. That's under the blood. And he's not holding it against you at all. The devil who's the accuser of the brethren is the liar who's saying, Oh no, God remembers and he's still mad and he's still got plenty of punishment to heap on you. When they have blown it and God is fully aware of it, what is the next thing that you see God doing after they've blown it? God comes to the garden, and God's looking for Adam. He's not looking for Adam to take him 
to the woodshed. He's looking for Adam because he made Adam and he made Eve for an intimate relationship with himself. He's coming to meet with them. He's coming to pursue them. Yes, he is going to declare the consequences that are the, the result of their sin. Sin always has natural consequences. God created a moral universe. It's like a gigantic machine with the gears moving in a particular direction. And when we choose to work against that, we become the gear running in the wrong direction. And the universe is designed in a way we're going to be damaged by that if that's what we choose to do. But God isn't going... All right, come on to the woodshed because I'm going to give you the whooping of your life. No, for us as his children, our sins are under the blood and it is Jesus' righteousness credited to us. God is just pursuing us. God is the one who is saying, don't let bad choices stand between you and me. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. You remember this above everything else. I still love you and I'm still chasing you. Don't let go of that truth. Don't believe the lie of the enemy. The second thing to remember is that God has made a, day, a way to deal with both your temptations and your failures. Verse 15 is, a, is the first prophecy about that. We said that, that word about God cursing the serpent and saying, You'll bite her child's foot, but he will crush your head is the first reference to what Jesus would do. That at the cross it's going to look like the serpent has won. He's given the, the, the deadly bite that's going to bring Jesus down. And in fact, he doesn't stay down with his resurrection. He is crushing the head of the serpent. The enemy understands this. It's why whenever we engage in spiritual warfare or prayer, we say to the enemy, we remind you of Jesus' victory at the cross. In the name of Jesus, we declare the victory of Calvary. And the enemy always understands, oh no, that's the moment where the head of the enemy is crushed. They, they tremble at that thought because they understand Jesus won full victory and you have that victory. You have that authority over the enemy. So now... Paul can tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the only temptations that you have are the same temptations that all people have, but you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can bear, but when you're tempted, God will also give you a way to escape that temptation. You will be able to endure it. Now, if we're really honest, and it's hard for church folks to be honest on Sunday morning because we're supposed to just look good. If we're honest... That verse sounds like a really spiritual lie, doesn't it? We're never supposed to say that about the Bible because it is always true. But it sounds like a lie, doesn't it? Because so many times we've been in temptation and, and we, we lost, we did the wrong thing. It is like, I didn't find a way out. I didn't find strength to get out. I gave in. Why? What's the deal? Here's the part you don't want to hear, and it's just a major part of the equation. If you want that verse to be true in your life, here is the biggest single key I know of for you to put this into practice. If in the face of your greatest temptation, if on any given day you want to have victory when you feel overwhelming temptation, you do this one thing and see if you don't walk in victory. You get your struggle, you get your temptation in that moment in the light. You know what I mean when I say get it in the light? You get on the phone, you call somebody, you find somebody, you find that trusted brother, you find that trusted sister, and you say, I'm struggling. I want to do the right thing, but I think even more, I want to do the wrong thing. 
I want to honor Jesus, but right now I want to drink. Right now I want to call this man. I want to call this woman. I want to do something unholy. There is something in me that longs for what I don't need to do, and I don't want to do that. And I'm telling you, because i got to get it in the light. I need your help. I need you praying for me, but as much as anything, I need you talking to me. This is what in Celebrate Recovery, this is why sponsorship is so powerful. It's why you touch base with a sponsor every day. You get into the light what you're feeling. You don't just go, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. It's all good. I'm just loving Jesus all day long. <laughs> yeah. You show me the person that's just loving Jesus all day long and doing the right thing. I'll show you somebody that's been dead for a while. Because everybody that's living struggles with temptation you want to get victory, get it in the light. First John 2 sums it up well, where John says, I'm writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin. He wants us to have victory, but he understands sometimes you're going to blow. And he says, but if anyone does sin, we have someone who pleads with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And Christ himself is the means by which our sins are forgiven and not only our sins, but also the sins of everyone. He's saying, understand, when you have blown it, Jesus himself stands as our defense attorney to say, Father, as badly as he just blew it today, as much as she just screwed up today, remember that that's why I went to the cross. I went to the cross because they're not always going to get it right. That sin is fully paid for. All the punishment that it deserved it's already been received. The price is paid in full. And that brings us to the final truth. When you've blown it, you remember this, that God not only wants to forgive your sin, but He wants to free you from your guilt and shame. One truth that, or a piece that's easy to overlook in this story is Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, were covered with a sense of shame about what they had done, but even about their own nakedness. And in verse 21, the verse that's easy to run past, it's God who covers them. And it says very specifically, an important piece, that he used animal skins and he made clothes for the man and his wife. And he, God put the clothes on them. God is, in a very powerful but tangible and symbolic way, is, is addressing the shame and the embarrassment that they carry. And God is saying, I'm the one who will deal with that. I'm the one who will create a covering for that. Now, there's a powerful picture in this. Death has never been a part of the equation until this day. Nothing's dying on earth yet. And yet, for their shame to be covered, animals have to die. It is the first hint of sacrifice being necessary for the, the guilt of sin to be covered. Animals have to die. Ultimately, Christ is the one who's going to die to provide our covering for our sins. But it is a picture of the fact that God wants to cover, not just deal with our sin, but to deal with our guilt and our shame. We have such a hard time getting this from here down to here. But whatever you've done in the past, God wants you not only to be forgiven, he wants you to be completely set free from any sense of guilt and shame about your past. And I get it. I know right now under the sound of my voice that there are people who are going, you just don't understand. I had an abortion. 
There's a baby that never took a breath because of a decision that I made. I'll always carry the guilt of that. Jesus doesn't want you to spend another day feeling guilt over that. It has been paid in full. Your sin and your shame are completely covered. For that person who's going, I'll never feel free of the, of the guilt and shame because I cheated. I cheated on my spouse. I'm the cause of much pain. I'm the cause of a divorce. I'm the cause of my kids' suffering. I'll always carry that shame. Jesus doesn't want you to carry that shame one more day. Adam and Eve could not cover themselves adequately. This is God Himself covered them. It's God Himself taking away their shame. I want to tell you, I can't say words today that are going to to take the pain away, that are going to pull the shame out of you. I promise you this. A supernatural touch from God is capable of removing shame and guilt that you have carried for years, that you have believed the lie of the enemy that you'll never be free from. And God is able in a moment of time to cover you and to draw out of you that ongoing lingering pain, guilt, and shame that has just hung like a dark cloud over your life. I just want to encourage you today to take heart and to be unafraid to ask God to do something that you haven't been able to do for yourself. Adam and Eve, they got busy trying to sew together fig leaves. Can you imagine trying to make clothes out of fig leaves? They just had to cover it. They had to try and cover up their shame. That is a picture of us trying to get rid of our own shame and guilt. I don't believe a fig leaf would hang together very long through, through the busyness of, of daily life. It's just going to tear apart and fall. We've tried to deal with our own guilt and shame, and it's like fig leaves. just tear. God alone could cover what needed to be covered in their lives and take away their shame. You need a touch from God. Would you just be willing in boldness to say, Oh God, I don't deserve it, but I'm asking you today not only for your forgiveness, but for you to just do a, a miraculous work in me to completely cover me, to just take all the venom out and to let me finally be free and happy again. The concept of paradise lost and restored, here's the thing we don't tend to get. You don't have to wait till Revelation 20. You don't have to wait till the rapture to experience paradise restored. In Christ, paradise can be restored today. But we've got to be willing to turn to Him and ask for it and trust Him for it. Would you join me as we go to Him together in prayer right now? God, our need is so great, and yet You are so much greater. We thank You that in Christ... You have covered every part of our need. You've paid for our sins. You've covered our shame. And I just pray that in a fresh way today, oh God, you would touch us and that you would free us and heal us. Maybe today you need to experience God's forgiveness in your life. If that's the case, would you just ask Him? Jesus has already paid for it. Would you just in simple faith say, oh Jesus, I need you in my life. I need your forgiveness. I trust what you did for me at the cross. By faith, I receive you and your forgiveness in my life. 
Maybe the weight that you feel is not the need for forgiveness as it is just freedom from the guilt and the shame and just the burden that you've carried for so long. Would you just ask Him today, Oh God, I'm, I need You today to cover me, to free me from that. I need a touch from You. I'm going to just keep asking for it and reaching out for it until You give it. Oh God, today, would You touch hearts and minds and would You let us today see ourselves as You see us covered in the righteousness of Jesus, all the stain of our sin fully removed. Lord, by faith, we receive that today in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi. Thanks so much for taking time to tune in and listen to the message today through Freedom Online. Uh, we would love to, the opportunity to meet you personally anytime that you're in our area. But if today you heard something that really connected or that maybe you've got questions about, you'd like to talk with somebody or have someone pray with you, we'd love to hear back from you. You can reach us in a couple of different ways. You'll find on the website a contacts link. You can contact me or any member of our leadership directly. Or you can call us at the number that you see on the website or at the bottom of the screen now. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope that you have a great week.